0: We are kicking off a brand new message series uh, this morning, and you know in February it's uh, Valentine's, and, and I, so I say Valentine's because Andrea hates it, um, but uh, February is Valentine's Day, and, and, um, and so we'll always try to take some time out during this month to talk about relationships because no matter how long you've been in relationship, no matter how long you've been married you still have problems. I still have problems. I was 28 years uh, down the road, and there's still struggles. And so uh, we don't just have rela- uh, relationship problems with, with uh, spouse or in, uh, you know, husband, wife or boy, girl kind of thing. We have problems in relationships, in all the relationships in our lives. There's always stress and, and, and struggle in those. And so what I want to try to do this month is, is kind of hit uh, and paint with some broad strokes in, uh, in relation to relationships and, and see if we can't kind of untwist some of the stuff that over the years we've gotten twisted in our society. And, uh, and, and so what I really want to do is just use the next several weeks to share some biblical truth about relationships, about love, about friendship, uh, and, and other things. And so that's what we're going to be doing the next um, few weeks. I'm excited to have you join me in that. So I want to start today, uh, just consider this, love is learned, love is learned. I, I grew up in a home where I knew that I was loved, and, and I know that a lot of people didn't, didn't have that, that they didn't have parents who regularly told them they loved them, and, and so I'm fortunate to have that, I grew up in a home where I knew that I was loved, but It wasn't perfect love. So I I was told often that I was loved, um, but I I think I've shared this before. My father was gone a lot. He was a pastor, and uh, we really felt that his first priority was the church. And so he was always dealing with other people's problems, he was always out talking to other couples, other kids. And, uh, and we kind of felt left out and left alone when I was growing up, my siblings and I. Um, my mother was often preoccupied. Uh, she was a very busy woman. She liked to keep busy, liked to do stuff. Um, but oftentimes, she volunteered herself into a frenzy and so didn't have a lot of time for family. So I knew that I was loved, but love looked a little funny to me. So through my childhood or throughout my childhood, as I learned what love was, I I learned these things about love. I I learned that love often lacked personal attention. Like you could say, I love you, but there really wasn't that personal connection very often. I I learned that love could be self-centered. I had siblings, they uh, appreciated themselves, and and, and so I learned that love could be self-centered. I learned that love that love couldn't hold back anger. And so even if somebody said, I love you, even if my older brother maybe said, I don't even remember him ever saying that, but but I knew he did because, you know, that's what you're supposed to do. Um, But that love couldn't hold back, that like he still got mad at me. You know, I mean, he still said those things. If you cross this line down the center of the room, you will die. Um, And so so I I learned that love couldn't hold back that anger. I, I learned that love could be wonderful and love could be really, really weird. And so I, I had a good childhood. I would say I had a good childhood. I, I, had, I had good parents. But I was confused about what love really meant. I bet most of us have a similar story. Now, some of you maybe had a better childhood than than I did, and maybe your parents were attentive. They were were there. They said they love you. They showed you they loved you. They took you places and did things with you. But I'll bet some of you had a worse childhood than I, and maybe some of you a much worse childhood. But every one of us learned love from our parents or grandparents, or their step-parents, or other family member, adopted parents. We, we learned love from those who were older than us, and, and, and we were receiving that love from them. Now, this simple idea that love is learned is part of the reason that parenting is such an important task. Um, have you heard of the idea of imprinting? Imprinting, a, so there, there are certain um, birds especially, birds that hatch um, out of an egg and, uh, and, and that walk immediately, okay, so uh, that type of birds, and I don't remember what the technical name for them is, but anyway, if a bird hatches and immediately can walk, that type of bird imprints on its, its parent, or, or really kind of the first thing that it, that it sees. There was an Austrian scientist years and years ago who had a, a, a whole a family of geese who imprinted on him as the mom. And, and so they followed him around, and everywhere that he went, they went. Uh, it was really crazy kind of thing. And so there's this idea in the animal world that certain animals will imprint on an adult And and then that's their parent, right? And so they have this innate understanding that that parent's going to protect them, going to provide for them, going to love them, okay? And and they're going to learn from that parent. I believe that children have a similar innate imprinting when it comes to understanding love. That process takes much longer than it does for a baby bird. But if a child is born to loving parents, they will, generally speaking, have a healthier understanding of love, and they will seek out others in their uh, teen and adult years who also share that similar healthy idea of love. But if a parent is uh, verbally or physically or sexually or emotionally abusive, if a parent is distant or maybe controlling on the other side the child still understands that behavior as love. Okay, so I want you to process this for a minute if you're a parent. Your child, or or maybe think about um, your parents and you as a child, whatever a child receives from adults in their life, that parent figure in their life, whatever a child receives from that parent figure, they translate as love. So if that love is healthy, that child develops a healthy understanding of love. If if what that child gets is abuse, then that child grows up with an understanding of love that is abusive. And so we see this pattern continue in the lives of, of people. And so an abused child will often seek out an abuser in their life because that's how they understand love. They have learned what love is, and anything outside of that conditioning is foreign to them when it comes to love. And and so we might look at somebody who's in an abusive relationship, why don't they just get out? Why don't they just get away? Why don't they just go someplace else or not be with that type of person? But we don't understand that, that what they're experiencing is what they believe to be love. It's pretty easy to see. That in today's culture, we have gotten love twisted over the years. We have. We've confused love with sex. We love inanimate objects. We we often treat animals and and love animals more than we do people and, and even children. We've devalued life as a society. And so we have devalued love. We, we really have turned love into what Tina Turner calls a second-hand emotion that comes and goes on a whim. And, and so I think, as, as we kick off this series, I, I think we start with this: We need a better example of love than the one that we've been handed by society. We need a better example of love let's pray God you love us you love us with a love that often we don't or can't even understand Father I just would ask today that that you would show us your love that you would give us ears to hear that you would give us a heart that is open to your word and to what it says for our lives. God, God we really have been handed a poor example of love from our society and, and, and because of that from our parents and from other adults in, in our lives and, and we've, we've got to get that fixed. We've got to untwist this concept of love so that we can love genuinely and we can love like you And and we can love in a way that is translated to our children and young people so that they grow up with a healthy understanding of what love is. So, Father, I pray today that that you would speak through me, that you would stop me from saying anything that that might be untrue or off point. And that, God, you would speak directly to us today. In Jesus' name, amen. So society gives us a version of love or a picture of love that is often twisted. And there's a bunch of other things and problems and issues that's wrapped up in there. But from the beginning of creation, God has been expressing a different kind of love to humanity. And so we go back to the Bible, and that's what we say in real life we always want to do. We always want to go back to the Bible and go, what does the Bible say? If we go back to the Bible very early, to the book of Genesis, it's the first book in the Bible written by a guy named Moses. And he wrote about how the world began, and how the universe began, and, and how God spoke it into being, and how he created everything. And so we see that in Genesis chapter 1, where God creates the heavens and the earth, and the sun and the stars and the the moon, and he he separates the land from the water, and and on the sixth day of creation, he creates this this person, and he calls him Adam, And, and God says that everything is good. But in Genesis chapter 2, we see that that, that the Moses kind of takes a step back. And so he says, okay, in the first six days of creation, God made everything, and on the sixth day, he made man. But in chapter 2, we see God taking Adam in the midst of his created world and placing Adam in, in this thing he calls the garden, which is just like this was just this great place, okay, I don't know how to explain it, and maybe it was just like every other place in the world, because everything was perfect, but the point is that God takes Adam and he puts him in this physical place, and God shows Adam who he is by recreating many of the plants and the animals that he created on the first six days in front of Adam, okay, so, so God does this big creation of the whole world, and then with Adam next to him, he creates, recreates some animals and some plants, and he grows them up out of the ground, and he goes, Adam, what would you like to call this? Okay, and, and so we see in Genesis chapter 2 this relationship that is growing between God and Adam. So Adam knows without a shadow of a doubt that this person with him, this being with him, created everything that can be seen. That he's all powerful. Okay, Adam also understands that this being, God, loves him. Because he's taking the time to show him what he's done. He's giving Adam the ability to name the things that he's created. You see in this picture, this beautiful story of a a father and his son. And he's showing these, he's giving Adam responsibility. He then creates Eve for Adam. Adam. In a very loving gesture, it's not good for Adam to be alone. I'm going to create a helper for him. And then he gives Adam the responsibility of telling Eve everything that God had done before she came to be. So Adam is now given the responsibility of of expressing uh, uh, Eve... God created all this stuff. I watched him do it. It was incredible. And he tells her the story. He then goes on to say, look, God has given us one rule in this place. We can eat from any tree in the garden except for the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If we eat from that, the consequence is death. So God had one rule for Adam. When he created Eve, he gave Adam the responsibility of sharing that rule with Eve. Now, if you know anything about the Bible or been to church before, you know it went downhill from that. Eve ate from the fruit. Adam didn't stop her. She gave some to him, and cause, probably because she was naked, he ate it. Um, and so, look, if you're married, uh, ladies, and you want your husband to say yes, now you have a way uh, to get him. Okay. So I don't just threw that out there. I don't, I don't just take that or leave it. Okay. Okay. Um, Anyway, so, so they break the rule of God, and, and then I'm going to suggest that God, in his love, followed through on the consequence that he said would come, okay? So God is displaying and showing love to Adam. This is what love looks like. Love tells you the rules beforehand. Love stays consistent to those rules Love follows through when there's a consequence, right? Love follows through with that. And and so love is not this easy thing that just lets you do whatever you want to do with no consequence. There there are rules to love. There's boundaries to this. I love you unconditionally, and we see this in the picture of Adam and Eve. I love you unconditionally, but I love you enough that I'm going to tell you the rule, and I'm going to give you the consequence, and if you break the rule, I'm going to follow through. Now, that's a great thing for us as parents to remember. You've heard me talk about parenting before and I say you have two big rules as parents. You got you got to be consistent in what you do. If it was wrong yesterday, it's got to be wrong today, and it's got to be wrong tomorrow. If you get in trouble for doing that with dad, you got to get in trouble for doing that with mom, okay? you got to be consistent, and you got to follow through. So if you say there's a rule, and if you break it, here's what's going to happen, you had better be prepared the first time to bring that consequence, because that's how we understand love. So when they broke the rule, God showed his love by following through with a consequence. And then he continued to express his love to Adam and Eve in spite of their disobedience. God continued to show love to his creation by cutting off the rampant sin in the days of Noah when he saved him and his sons and their wives through the ark. He chose Abraham and his family to express his love further to his chosen people. Out of God's love, he rescued the Israelites from slavery in Egypt, and he continued to lead and guide them through prophets and through priests up until the time of Jesus. Jesus then was the physical representation of God's love and desire for relationship with his creation, okay? So we have God showing love throughout all of creation to his people, and we continue to go off, and we get... We get things twisted, and we go and do our own thing, and God tries to bring us back into this relationship, and then we go off the other way, and so God, in his love, sends his son, Jesus Christ, as a physical representation of the love of God expressed in the lives of people, and so Jesus said that he came to share God with the world, and he came, he's like, look, I am the representation of God, whatever God does, I do. And he loved, and he healed, and he taught people how to live. He said, look, here's the rule. Here's the consequence. He followed through with those things. He was consistent in that. He didn't show favoritism. Jesus was the physical expression of God's incredible love. Through Jesus' life and ministry, God demonstrated his love for us by more clearly expressing what he expected of us. And so we see in the story of Jesus that God wasn't interested in our ability to follow rules or to sacrifice animals, but he was interested in how we loved other people the way God loved us. And nowhere is God's love for us expressed more clearly than in the sacrifice of his son, Jesus. The apostle Paul wrote about this great and perfect love in his letter to the church in the city of Ephesus. And so we're going to be in the book of Ephesus in the New Testament, or Ephesians in the New Testament, chapter 2, verses 1 through 10 is what we're going to look at uh, right now. So if you have your phone or Bible app or you've got a tablet or you just want to follow along on the screen, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. Here's what uh, the Apostle Paul writes. He's talking to, again, the, the church in Ephesus. So, so you and I are part of this. It's like he's speaking to us. He says, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, he says, we were by nature deserving of wrath. Okay, so he's saying, look, before you came into a relationship with Jesus, before you believed that he lived, that he died, that he rose again, and before you entered into this saving relationship with Jesus, you were a part of the world. You lived separate from God. You followed your own evil desires. You gratified the desires of of your flesh. You did whatever you wanted to do, uh, and you lived apart from a relationship with God. Okay, that's the first three verses. But because, this is verse 4, but because of his great love for us, God who is rich in mercy made us alive with Christ. So he says, first you were dead in your sin. Now in verse 4, he says, uh, and 5, you were made alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God goes even farther. He raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages, that's today, by the way, 2,000 years removed from Paul's writing of this letter, in the coming ages, he says, God might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves, it is a gift from God, not by works, so that no one can boast for we are god's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works which god prepared in advance for us to do and we see in this description of god's love for us that god's love isn't rational but it is logical god's love isn't rational to us in our estimation god's love isn't rational but it is logical God's love isn't rational because we get it twisted we've got a twisted view of, lo- of what love is because his love isn't dependent on our behavior or our relationship with him that's why we don't think it's rational that's why God is love is irrational because it's not dependent on what you or I do or our relationship with him over and over we see in scripture that while we were still sinners Christ died for us so he expresses love to those who actively and openly hate him that's irrational it doesn't make sense in fact when scripture says and G- jesus says love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you we throw that out as christians because we know that's what we're supposed to do but we don't get it love my enemies what do you they're my enemies god Okay, that, that means I'm not supposed to love them because they're my enemy. It doesn't make rational sense to us. We, we go, that, that just doesn't, it, we don't get it. It doesn't compute. How can I love my enemy? And, and we might go, yeah, I'll pray for those who persecute me. God, uh, rain fire down from heaven on my enemies, right? That's how we, uh, God, uh, love my enemies by taking them from this earth, uh, that's how we express that. That's rational to us. That's how we love, right? I will love you if you will love me. I, I, will, I will love you because of how you make me feel. And, and even this we'll say is where, you know, you want somebody to marry you or, or whatever, and you'll say, You make me a better person. And that's supposed to make us feel good, right? I go, Oh, that's so sweet. No, it didn't. It's selfish. It's selfish because we turn love back on ourselves. You make me a better person. That's why I like being with you because I like myself better and it's all about liking myself and that's good. And then that's how we live in this rational kind of love. We go, if you love me, I'll love you. If you do nice things to me, I'll do nice things for you. And if you don't think that's the truth, uh, play a trick on your spouse and do something not nice for them and see what they do in response to that. Say something negative or mean. And what's our first reaction? Oh, yeah? (laughs) Well, you. Because that's how he does. Rational love to us. And yet God expresses this irrational love because he loves those who hate him. That doesn't make sense. So Paul starts out in, uh, speaking in general terms of Christians before they come to know Jesus. So, so this is still where people are who are not followers of Jesus. Th- this is where they live, right? Uh, just like you and I, if you're a believer in Jesus, we used to live in this life. We, we once lived in a life that, that Paul calls death. We were dead in sin. We were following the ways of the rulers of the kingdom of the air. By the way, that's Satan. That's what, uh, how God refers to Satan in, in the Bible oftentimes. He was at work in us. So Satan was at work in us when we were apart from Christ so that we were gratifying the cravings of our, fa- our flesh, following those desires and thoughts. We were, by our evil nature, deserving of God's wrath. It paints a pretty good picture, right? We were opposed to God in our previous life sin was alive in us and we were spiritually dead in sin we followed Satan because of our own evil will our own evil cravings and the consequences for our lifestyle was the wrath of God turned against us, not because God stopped loving us, because he never stops loving. He will, uh, I will never leave you or forsake you, that's the promise. It's not that God stops loving us, it's that by our own actions, we incur the wrath of God. It's because he loves us, and it's because his love is logical, that he shares the rule, he shares the consequence, and then he follows through with that consequence. Look what happens in verse 4. Paul says, look, this is where you used to live, but because of God's great love for us. and We're going to stop here just, just for a second, okay? Because of God's great love for us. I want you to notice what it doesn't say there. Because sometimes I think as Christians we read this text, but we hear it a completely different way. But because of God's love for us, this is how we hear it. But because I started coming to church. But because I gave some money in the offering plate that time. But because I'm a good person. But because I make moral decisions. Uh, but because I give my, my shirt, uh, the shirt off my back to somebody in need. But because I stop on the side of the road and help people. But because I'm, that's how we read that. We go, but because I've done the right thing, God has great love for me. And that is not what Paul says. Paul really says it like this. In spite of everything you've ever done, said, or thought, God has great love for you. It's because of God's great love, not because of anything that you or I have done, but because of his own love expressed to us, he's done several things. He says he's made us alive even though we were dead in our sin. That's a like dead, alive. That's a big thing, right? Because of God's great love for us, he raised us up and seated us in heavenly places. Let me give you a picture of what I think this is like. Yesterday morning in our life group leaders, uh, leaders meeting, we had a couple of, of young baby, a couple girls, uh, they're ba- very young, very young, like a year or so, year and a half old, something like that. Um, those babies, they could get into a lot of things, right, but they can't get on anything because they're just a little bitty. They got these little tiny legs. If you're a short person, you get this. Little tiny legs. And they, I'm sorry, that was mean. I was thinking about my wife. Um, you gotta have a step stool, right? You can't get to play high places you can't get to on your own. And so, if, if a baby wants in a high chair, wants to be up on the table, you know, you feed a baby or whatever. If a baby needs to get anywhere that it can't get, what needs to happen? Mom or dad or somebody has to pick them up and seat them in places where they need or want to be. And so, God's, uh, Paul says this there are heavenly realms that you cannot get to. And it has nothing to do with the length of your legs and everything to do with the condition of your heart. You cannot get there. And so God raised you up and set you at the table with Jesus. That's a beautiful picture. Do you remember when you were a kid and you have to sit at the kid's table? And how, how awesome it was when you finally reached the age where you could sit at the adult table when they had a family get together like that was awesome moment you're like i've arrived i'm this is what god does he picks us up and he gives us a place at the table with jesus not because of anything that we've done but because of his great love for us listen he goes on because of god's great love for us He expressed his love this way that he might show how amazing his grace really is expressed through the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. Okay. God wants to make it clear that none of this happened because we figured out the secret code to salvation. Not once is our actions, abilities, or attitudes mentioned. It is God's grace that moves towards us but it is not because of us, okay? God's grace moves towards you, but it is not because of you. It is not because you're good enough or you said the right things, or you do the right things. It is not because you come to church. It is not because you put money in the offering plate. It is not because you told somebody about Jesus. It is not because you serve. It is not because of who you are, but because of his great love. This irrational love that reaches towards us when we don't care anything about it. That's the love of God. Two times in verses 5 and again in verse 8, Paul reminds us that it is by grace we are saved. And it is not from us, but it is for us. Okay? By grace you have been saved not from you, but for you, so that we can't claim that our behaviors or beliefs earned us his blessing. So I, I, gotta, I gotta take another second out because we get this messed up all the time as, as Christians, and I want you to understand this. Okay, there are those people who are gonna say, there is nothing that you can do to go to heaven because anything that you would do is considered a work, and, and this passage, in this verse, it says that we're saved by grace through faith, not of works, so that anyone can boast. Nobody can boast. We can't work our way to heaven. That's what it's saying. And so there are people who will say, look, we're, we're saved. Like the Belief, confession, repentance, baptism. That's what the Bible says you need to do in order to receive the salvation of God over and over in the Bible. It says, believe and you're saved. Repent and you're saved. Confess and you're saved. Be baptized and you're saved. Over and over, look it up. But there are people who are going to say, none of that matters because those things are works. If we have to do them to get to heaven, they're works. Eh, wrong. Misunderstanding of what a work is. If you have a job, you go to work, and you... Provide a skill to your employer, whatever that skill is. Programming computers or digging ditches. It's still a skill. You're providing it to your employer, and you receive from him a wage, hopefully equal to the ability or the schooling or whatever it is that you're providing him. So I work for a paycheck. How many of you work for free? Uh, mothers not included. Your moms, don't raise your hands. Right if if we just if we just on the regular worked for nothing how excited would we be about showing up to work on Monday <laughs> If we work for and we got nothing from it we work and we get a wage from that that work that's what it's worth You're going to tell me that heaven eternity with God the Father is worth or equal to my belief or confession or repentance or baptism is not. It's like buying Michael Jordan's $23 million mansion for a buck. It is not your shrewd business uh, acumen that got you that, that deal. It would have been Michael Jordan's grace. I don't know if Michael Jordan has grace. Uh, but anyway, if he did, and you did that. So you would say, um, this house is not equal to what I gave for it, Okay. Belief, repentance, confession, baptism cannot be works because they do not equal what we receive for them. We are saved by grace through faith. That faith doesn't come from us. It's given to us by God. The ability to believe in a God that we can't see is given to us by God. No one comes to the Father, or no one comes to the Son unless the Father draws them. That was Jesus said, and so we are given the ability to believe in a God that we can't see, and we're given that by God's grace because of His great love for us. And then we're poured out on His blessings are poured out to us because of His love and not because of what we do. So let me break down verse nine real quick. Uh, here's verse nine in a nutshell: There is nothing that you can do to earn your way to heaven is that clear enough nothing that you can do God through Jesus Christ has done it all you and I were on our way to death but because of God's great love he extended his grace towards us in Jesus he saved us he gave us real life and he shows us what real love is God's love isn't rational but it is logical God's love is logical because it makes sense that a perfect God would love his creation perfectly. His love is ordered and it's defined. It's perfect love and it causes him to be consistent with his rules and consistent with the consequences. God doesn't play favorites. He doesn't sugarcoat the truth. He follows through on his promises. He doesn't give us everything we want. Because of his love, He allows us to face difficulties because that's how we grow. His love for our, he loves us for our benefit because he loves us with a perfect love. But we don't love perfectly. We get love twisted. Unlike God, we tend to love rationally. I mentioned this already. We love those who love us. We love with a selfish kind of love. When Jesus tells us to love our enemies, it doesn't make sense. And so our rational love asks this question, what do I get out of this relationship? Rational love is the cause, I think, of affairs and divorce. You were angry with me. You didn't love me the way I wanted you to. And so you must not love me Because you didn't love me the way I wanted you to love me. And this other person over here, they love me the way I want to be loved. And so they must love me and you must not love me. That's how we think. That's how we process. Rational love reduces love to an emotion or maybe even a sexual act. And we love rationally. We also love illogically. Do a simple Google search and and, and you'll find numerous lists of people who have married the most ridiculous things. People have married rocks. Rocks. They married rocks. One guy uh, married a Barbie doll. One guy married a train. One person I saw married a radio, an old-timey radio. Uh, One particular lady married a really old ficus tree. And one lady, after a breakup, got her friends together and uh, somebody else to perform the ceremony, went down to the beach and married herself. Illogically, we will argue things like this. Don't tell me who I can or can't love. You probably heard that argument. But I think that is A dishonest argument. Don't tell me who I can or can't love really should be translated like this. Don't tell me who I can or can't have sex with. That argument is really about sex and it's not about love. I I love several men but I don't want to sleep with them. <laughs> Some of you women, okay, I get that, all right. <laughs> so, so look, if, if, if two women or two men love each other and they want to live together and, and they want to do life together without a sexual relationship, go for it. I, I don't see anything wrong with that. If you care for somebody, you want to love them with that kind of love that doesn't expect anything with the love of God, and, and you don't want to mix sex into that relationship, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. And I think it's dishonest when we say it has to be one thing or the other. If you love this person, you've got to have sex with them. We will always, outside of God's perfect love, seek to love God illogically and so society I think speaks out of both sides of its mouth we're told that sex is just physical and so it shouldn't matter and you should just be able to do it and don't get it caught up with all these other things just it's not a part of our lives just this physical thing that we do it's nothing more we shouldn't place limits on it but then we see love being used as leverage for sex well do you love me Well, then we should. We can't have it both ways. We can't say that sex doesn't have anything to do with love and then use it as a means to gauge our love. We get it twisted. Love and sex are two completely different things that God intended to come together in a marriage relationship. They're like peanut butter and chocolate. They're beautiful together. God intended them to be enjoyed together in a healthy, monogamous, hetero, till death do us part kind of relationship. Now I know that God wants us to love others who share our gender, but He didn't design them to share the sexual experience. And while God's love is irrational but logical, our twisted view of love is rational and illogical, let me share with you one other idea from the next passage, the next verse in our passage. Verse 10, Paul writes this, we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared beforehand for us to do. This last week, several states begin to take up the abortion issue, clearing the way, I believe, for abortions into the third trimester. And if you listen to the language, at least, at at minimal, opening up the possibility by the language used to determine after delivery of some sort, whether it's natural delivery or C-section, whether a baby is viable after birth. And if it's determined by the mother and a physician that the born and living baby is not viable, then that baby's life would be terminated or allowed to expire. That's the language that's being used. I want to make sure we get this. There is only one choice when it comes to a child, and it happens before conception. After conception, I believe that abortion is murder. Amen. Now, Not every child is perfect, and I know that full well. Ten fingers and ten toes don't tell the whole story. But the person you may have started at conception, God created and prepared for this world. Throughout history, Satan has killed babies. He did it in the nations of old through child sacrifice in horrific idol worship. He did it through Pharaoh in an attempt to wipe out the Jewish people. He did it through King Herod in an attempt to kill Jesus. And he is doing it today by the millions. I have no doubt that this is at least in part what Paul calls the transgressions and sins in the first few verses of our text and the disobedience, and the gratifying of our selfish flesh. Paul spoke of those things in the first few verses of chapter 2. But this is real life. And so I know that there are some here today who have varied sexual pasts and who have had abortions. But I know this, absolutely, that no sin, I want you to hear me, No sin, not homosexuality or abortion or anything else, disqualifies you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. (laughs) Consider this as a perfect example. The man who penned Ephesians chapter 2 And wrote about the cravings of our flesh and the evil that we often follow before we come to Christ. The man who wrote about the grace of God extended to us through the cross. The man who wrote about life being precious and how we're created for purpose. That man hunted down followers of Jesus, men and women and presumably children. And had them executed because of their faith. The man who wrote Ephesians chapter 2, just a few years before he penned those words, was killing Christians because they believed in Jesus. If you don't think that's a picture of the grace of God, you've missed it. He was dead in his sin, but God made him alive with Jesus, and he will do the same for you. You are God's handiwork, and nothing you have done, nothing you are doing, and nothing you will ever do will ever separate you from God's irrational and logical love for you. If you have ever sinned, if you have ever sinned, I, I want you to listen I don't want you just to listen to this. If I know, look, I know this is uncomfortable, so I want to make sure you're looking at me and you hear this. If you're in this room this morning, look and listen. If you're even watching this online at some point in the, in the future, stop what you're doing and look at. Me. You matter. You matter. You matter to God. You matter to us. You were conceived by two people, but God created you for purpose. God loves you. And he didn't wait for you to be perfect. He made you perfect through the sacrifice of his son because that's how much he loves you. It's completely irrational, and yet it's completely logical. You were created to do things that nobody else was created to do because God in His sovereignty created you for purpose. You were God's handiwork created before you were born to do good works in God. God has set the stage for you. He's prepared it all in advance, and He's waiting. I shouldn't say it that way. We're waiting for you to live out your purpose in Christ. If you're going to love like Jesus, we've got to untwist our understanding of what love is. Imagine what would happen if you and I began to love like Jesus. If our love was irrational, according to other people. Because we love not because of what we could get, but simply because this is a person who matters to God. And so I love you. A love that was irrational, and yet a love that was logical. A love that doesn't say, look, just do whatever you want to do, because I don't care about the consequences that you're going to experience but a love that says I love you even if you do something stupid and you suffer the consequences for that. I'm not going to take away those consequences, but I'm going to love you through them. Every relationship would be better and the church would be full of people who were loved by God and each other in healthy, healing, and hopeful ways. Our mission is to help every person possible find real life in Jesus and look more like Him every day. And that only happens when we understand love. The love of God that brought each and every one of us from death to life and will do the same for every other person who's just as messed up as we were. But in order for us to really work to accomplish that mission, We've got to recognize that every person matters to God. He's created every person on purpose. You matter to God. That's why we want you to experience real life in Jesus, because every person matters to God. I hope you get that. Let me pray. Father, thank you for loving us. Thank you for loving us with an irrational love and a logical love. God, we've gotten this idea of love so twisted in in our world. We've, we've, We've mixed it into so many other things and then we argue that it's not mixed into those things anymore and we do that just because our love is so selfish. God, would you help us to love And to look like Jesus. Would you help us do that, Father? In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, I love you. And I know keeping you uh, to 1120 may not demonstrate that love, you think. But it does. It does, because I love you.